The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing our study this morning on 1 Thessalonians. And we're in a section where Paul is... I believe answering some questions that Timothy brought back from him, with him when he was up in Thessalonica. It appears that some of the Thessalonian believers were expressing concern for their departed loved ones. In a few weeks that Paul was with them, he had emphasized the soon return of Yeshua. And the Thessalonians, it says in 1.10, were waiting on the Lord's return. Well, while they were waiting, some of them were dying. And so they're concerned that their dead loved ones are going to miss out. I mean, what happens to them when the Lord returns? They may have been concerned because of what 2 Esdras 13 has to say about the second coming. Now you're saying, what? What is that? You just said it's the book of Esdras. It's an apocryphal work that was included in the canon of the Septuagint. And so they would have had this available to them. It's not part of the modern biblical canon. It's called the Greek Ezra by modern scholars to distinguish it from the book of Ezra written in Hebrew. Ezra says this in 13.7, For those who are not left will be sad. Now this is talking about the second coming, all right? Those who are not left till he comes, they're going to be sad. Because they understand the things that are reserved for the last days but cannot attain them. In other words, they're sad because they're not going to be around for the last days. Verse 24 says, Understand, therefore, that those who are left are more blessed than those who have died. So if they were familiar with this text, which they probably were, then they're thinking, okay, what's happening to our loved ones? They're missing out. Well, whatever the reason for their concerns about those who died... Paul is answering them by assuring them from this text that the dead loved ones will not miss out on the second coming. Now, last week we looked at verse 13 that says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So, Paul is telling him he wanted to remove both their ignorance and their grief. And the solution to their grief lay in removing their ignorance. That makes sense, right? You know, as I thought about this, can you imagine how much grief has been caused by Bible ignorance? I mean, really. I mean, think about the people who fear every day about the tribulation. I mean, every time something comes on the news, oh no, you know, the tribulation is coming and they're worried about it. Or how about all those people that worry about the devil, every step they make, everything they do. Oh, the devil's going to do this, the devil's this, you know, and they're just all worried about that. Or how about the believers who fear losing their salvation? You know, oh, I had a bad day today. I hope the Lord still loves me. Or how about those who are trying to earn their salvation through their works? What a miserable existence, you know? And it's all Bible ignorance. And I think we have to understand that ignorance of the Scriptures can cause a lot of grief. And this should be our motivation to know them, to get in the Scriptures, to read them, to spend time in them so we can understand them. He said he didn't want them ignorant about those who were asleep. Now, Paul uses the metaphor sleep here for those who are dead. We spent most of our study last week talking about death and Sheol, And Paul uses this metaphor, sleep, I think, for a reason. Both in sleep and in death, men are unconscious of time and events that occur around them. They don't even know what's going on. And I think that's why it's a good analogy here. They sleep. They're still in existence. They haven't disappeared. They haven't gone out of existence. They're dead, but they're sleeping. Someday they'll be woke up. Now, Martin Luther, that great reformer, wrote this concerning unconscious sleep of the dead. I want to read what he has to say, but I want you to evaluate it as we're reading it, and you tell me why he is wrong here, okay? You get a chance to correct the reformer, Luther, all right? We should learn to view our death in the right light, so that we need not become alarmed on account of it, as unbelief does. Because in Christ, it is indeed not death, but a fine, sweet, and brief sleep, 
which brings us release from this veil of fears, from sin, and from the fear and extremity of real death, and from all the misfortunes of this life. And we shall be secure and without care, rest sweetly and gently for a brief moment, as on a sofa, until the time when he shall call and awaken us together with all his dear children to his eternal glory and joy. For since we call it sleep, we know that we shall not remain in it, but be again awakened and live, and that the time during which we sleep shall seem no longer than it had just fallen asleep. Hence we shall censor ourselves that we were surprised or alarmed at such a sleep in the hour of death and suddenly come alive out of the grave and from decomposition and entirely well, fresh with a pure, clear, glorified life, meet our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the clouds. Scripture everywhere affords such consolation, which speaks of the dead of the saints as if they fell asleep and were gathered to their fathers, that is, had overcome death through this faith, and comfort in Christ and awaited the resurrection together with the saints, who preceded them in death. Now, according to Kitola, there are 125 references in Luther's writings to soul sleep. Now, what's wrong? The main, there's several things, but what was the main thing wrong with what Luther had just said? Okay, Luther doesn't know what time it is. Okay? He's talking about something that is true, of saints prior to AD 70, prior to the second coming, but it's not true of saints today, all right? That would be true if Luther lived in this age, the age of the Old Covenant, but he wasn't. He lives in the age to come, the resurrection, the second coming, the judgment were passed. In the age to come, when a believer dies, he doesn't sleep. He's immediately ushered into the spirit realm to dwell with Yahweh and the gods. That happens immediately. Now, talking about soul sleep, the Septuagint has an interesting rendering of Psalm 115, 7 and 8. It says this, The dead shall not praise thee, O Lord, nor any that go down to Hades, but we the living will bless the Lord from henceforth and to the age. So he's saying the dead, they're sleeping, so they don't praise you because you don't praise too much when you're sleeping, and they just go down to Hades. Now, let me make a strong statement here. I believe, and you can prove me wrong, okay? You're welcome to try. <laughs> and I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying as far as I know, this is, this is where I'm standing here. It's impossible to argue a consciousness of the dead in Sheol from the Bible. Now, I know some of you are right. Oh, Luke 16. I know the story of Lazarus and the rich. I've actually read that, okay? Uh, You know, we're being in torment. They're talking to each other, which sounds like consciousness. But this is contrary to everything that Tanakh teaches about Sheol. Here's what I want you to consider about Lazarus and the rich man. It's a parable. Because it's a parable, we have to interpret it according to the rules of parabolic interpretation. In his book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, Bernard Ram says this, Determine the one central truth the parable is attempting to teach that might be called the golden rule of parabolic interpretation for practically all writers on the subject mention it with stress. C.H. Dodd writes this, The typical parable presents one single point of comparison. The details are not intended to have independent significance. Other writers, many other writers, have put the rule this way, don't make a parable walk on all fours. All right, you don't want to grab everything out and say, well, this is this and that's that. It's a teach a central truth. Now, in the New Testament, there are 10 uses of the word Hades. One of them is in that passage of Luke. Okay, in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man and dead being in Hades. The nine other ones say absolutely nothing about either a conscious state of the dead or conscious torment and fire. Instead, these nine references all fit the concept of Sheol and the Tanakh as a place of darkness, silence, unconsciousness, sleep, and death. So 
I just think that the scriptures are clear when you're sleeping prior to AD 70, when they were sleeping, they had no consciousness. They had no aware of it. Now, at the end of verse 13, Paul says this, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. What hope is he talking about here? What hope did the Thessalonian believers had that the unsaved didn't? Well, the hope that Paul no doubt would have taught them would have been the hope of Israel, which was the resurrection of the dead. He's teaching them eschatology. They know eschatology. So obviously he would teach them about that. If you go back to Hosea 13, 14, it says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. This is talking about resurrection. God's going to bring them out of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. So there we see Sheol, death, Put in the same category there. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Shoal, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. We also see this in Acts 24, 15. Paul says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both just and unjust. That's what Daniel 12 talks about. And then in Acts 26, 6 through 8, it says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God should raise the dead? So Paul says, that is my hope. That is their hope. That is the hope of Israel, that God would raise the dead. They are sleeping, they are in Sheol, all the dead went to Sheol, but the hope was they would be resurrected. And the Thessalonians, I believe, understood this because Paul had taught them a whole lot that little time he was with them. Now, what exactly did they understand about the resurrection? Well, I don't know that we know that. We know, here's the traditional view, which is little long ways, I think, from what they probably understood. This is the traditional view held by most of the church today. When a believer dies, their body goes to the grave, their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. All right? And actually, today they're right if they hold that view, okay? But, but if they don't believe the second coming's happened, then they're wrong, all right? But they would say they're in a disembodied state awaiting the resurrection at the end of time. By the resurrection, they mean the resurrection of their body. Then at the end of time... The Lord returns, He resurrected their decayed bodies and puts them all back together and changes the physical resurrected bodies into spiritual immortal bodies like Christ. I believe we get a, a resurrect, I believe we get a spiritual body when we lose this body, but I'm not sure why God would need to pull this body out of the grave to make a new one. I don't think He needs the old parts, I don't think He's going to recycle them. All right. Well, one of the major problems with this view is that Paul taught the resurrection was about to happen in his day. We see that if you read Young's in Acts 24, 15. Having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again of the dead. A rising again of the dead. It's about to happen in Paul's day. He's using mellow here. So what is the resurrection? It was Yahweh removing the old covenant dead saints out of Sheol and taking them to heaven to be in His presence. They were asleep. They were away from Him. They were not in His presence. He brings them into His presence. To be in God's presence is to be alive. But prior to Yeshua's messianic work, people didn't go to heaven. Prior to Yeshua's messianic work, all who died slept in the grave, awaiting the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So until Christ paid for man's sin, he could not go into Yahweh's presence. To be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of Yahweh is what the Bible calls resurrection. Now let's move on. Let's go to verse 14. Now, when I first caught to this passage, my intention was to do this whole passage, you know, this whole section, 13 through the end, get it out of the way, just do it as a section. But as I got into it, this material is dense. 
So instead of just running to the rapture, I'm going to try to unpack what's going on here. We'll get to the rapture next week. If you're waiting to be raptured, we'll talk about that next week. All right. But uh, I just want to try to unpack what's in here because I think there's a lot of material that we often skip over to try to get to the rapture. Okay. Paul says, for since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so, through Yeshua, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, the ESV sense here is more interpretation than translation. If you look in most, and it's a good interpretation, but when you're reading a Bible, you really don't want interpretation. You want translation. You, you want to figure out what it means, not tell, have them tell you what it is, okay? I wish they would just stick to translating it. The New American, Young's Literal, the King James, the ASV, the CSB, the, the Scriptures 2009, all have for if we believe. That's not implying doubt. Okay? The Greek here is agar, which would be if for. And so the ESV renders it since because it's a first-class conditional sentence, which assumed is assumed true from the author's perspective or for literary purposes. So this is saying if, but it's not like our if. They're assuming this is true. Now, commenting on this verse, J. Hampton Heathley, THM, writes this. He says, a conditional sentence has two parts. The condition, the protesis, and the result, the apodosis. If the first part is true or assumed to be true for the sake of argument, so is the second part or the result. So, since these Thessalonians believed that Christ really died and rose from the dead, they should likewise believe that He will return, and when He does, He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Yeshua. All right, so that's the idea of the sense here. He's since this, since we believe, this is going to happen. Now, he says we believe here. This is the important theological verb, pistuo, which translated in English is faith, trust, believe. You know, we have talked a lot about faith through the years, and it's an important concept, so I hope you understand it. But my question would be, if someone says, what is faith? Can you explain to them what it means to believe something? What it means to have faith? You've heard me say this over and over. Faith is understanding and assent. If I tell you, or if you tell me, I'm coming to the conference in April. Okay? Do I, how do I know if you're going to come or not? You told me you would. Well, I understand what you're saying. Do I believe it? That depends on your character. Okay? Some people will tell me that. I'll be like, sure. Other people tell me, and I'm like, oh, okay, I take that to the bank. It has to do with their character. But I understand... And then I assent to what they said. If I believe it and if I understand it, that's faith. Because I don't know until it happens. But I'm trusting in what you said is going to come to pass. Faith in Christ is understanding and assent to the gospel. That's what it's all about. And it happens with our thinking process. It's not about a heart, you know, that's a blood pumping organ that doesn't believe anything. All right. Well, let's talk for a minute about the gospel here. Because Paul says, since we believe that Yeshua rose from the dead. That here is hati. It's a hati clause, and it gives doctrinal content to the gospel. What is it that we have to believe? Well, our text says, they believe that Yeshua died and rose again. He says, since you believe this, that's it. Well, that's it? That's all... They, they believe he died and rose again. People, that is the gospel. Look at what Paul taught the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's talking about the gospel. You received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that He was buried. The burial just simply is proof of His death. They buried Him because He was dead, okay? And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. People, that is the Gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Now, the word Gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, 
And that's where we get our word evangelism in English. What does gospel mean? What does euangelion mean? Good news. It is good news. It's great news, okay? The Greek, the Greek verb euangelizo means to bring or announce good news. So the gospel's good news. You bring it, you announce it. Both these words are derived from the noun anglos, which means messenger, angel, anglos, messenger. In the New Testament, these two words, euangelion and euangelizo, become technical terms for the message of the good news offered to men through faith in Christ. All right, so the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. To believe the gospel is to be a Christian. Plus nothing. Okay? That's it. Now, I hope that maybe some of you are thinking, because you often hear me say that you have to believe that Yeshua is Yahweh. Okay? John 8, 24 Yeshua says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, he is not in the translation there that is added to the Greek text. It's not there. So what is Yeshua claiming here? He's claiming to be the I am. Unless you believe that I am. By doing that, he's equating himself with Yahweh. Yahweh claims to be the I am that I am in Exodus. The self-existent eternal God. Yeshua here is saying, I am Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. So to deny the deity of Christ is to deny the fact that He is Yahweh in the flesh is to die in your sins. So if we have to believe that He is God, why did Paul only say we have to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ? Why didn't he say we have to believe that he is God? He did say that. He said we have to believe in the resurrection. Okay? Look at Romans 1, 3, and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Yeshua the Christ, our Lord. The word declared here is translated from the Greek word horizo. It does not mean declare or show. Throughout the New Testament, it consistently means appoint, determine, or fix. It literally means to mark out, to set a boundary, or to decree, to appoint, to set limits. The passive voice points to God the Father doing the appointing, the marking out. The Tanakh background for this, in other words, is saying... God marked out Christ as God through the resurrection from the dead. That Tanakh background would be found in Psalm 2, 6, and 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here the Davidic son is decreed to be the anointed king. And what Paul implies is that Christ's resurrection, he was singled out to be the Son of God with power. It was the resurrection that marked Yeshua as the Son of God. The resurrection reversed the verdict that the Jews would have placed on a crucified Messiah. Okay, think about this for a minute. Look at Deuteronomy 21-22. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now the Jews knew that Yeshua had died by crucifixion on a tree. Therefore, according to Deuteronomy, he's under the curse of God. Thus, they'd have a hard time believing he could be the Messiah. See, most of the Jewish people in Paul's day expected the Messiah to come with power and political sway. They wanted a Messiah that would defeat the oppressive Roman rulers and establish the earthly kingdom in Jerusalem to live triumphantly forever with his people. They didn't view Messiah as someone who gets arrested and beat and mocked and crucified. This was absolutely devastating. 
But the resurrection changed everything. Notice what Peter preached on Pentecost in Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's what David was talking about. He said that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor his fleshy corruption. This Yeshua God raised up. And, and of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. God raised him, he exalted him to the right hand. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Listen, the resurrection demonstrated He is God. The resurrection also signaled that the new age had begun. See, in Judaism, the resurrection of the dead was linked with the return from exile and the fulfillment of God's promises. So the resurrection of Yeshua indicates that God has begun to fulfill His promises to Israel. And for Paul, resurrection was something that would happen at the end of the age. He saw the resurrection of Yeshua, that it demonstrated, it declared, it marked him out to be the Son of God and showed that they were in the end of the age. Now, Yeshua claimed to be God. And then he proved his claim by conquering death. Okay? And what that means is you better take pretty seriously what Yeshua has to say. Because he overcame death. And if you ever want to overcome death, you better pay attention to what he has to say. In John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And that means that people have to abandon the notion that all religions lead to the same place. They don't. Or this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It matters a lot what you believe. Because of the resurrection, Christ's words carry weight they never would have carried otherwise. If he'd remained in the grave, there'd be no question of whether he was the way to heaven or not. Who would care? He's dead. He's like the rest of them. No, he wasn't. The resurrection answers the question and ends the argument once and for all. Yeshua is the Son of God. He has power to overcome death. So that means everything he claimed is true. And people, here's what we have to understand. To deny the resurrection of Yeshua is to destroy the entire basis of the Christian faith. Because the, the Christian faith is not primarily built on the, the teachings of Christ, the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ. The Christian faith is based on all those culminating in the resurrection of the dead. Because if there's no resurrection, none of those other factors matter. So people often ask, well, does a person have to believe in the resurrection of Christ to be a Christian? Yes. That's part of the gospel. Okay? If you do not believe that he rose from the dead, you're saying he's a liar. All right? Look at Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Eternal life is predicated on belief in the resurrection. You have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Why is belief in resurrection so important? Because the resurrection proved that Christ is all he said he was. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a good prophet. He's not a great example. He's Lord. And what you believe about Yeshua will determine where you spend eternity. So the gospel is the death burial, and resurrection of Christ. Believing it saves us and gives us eternal life. And I want you, this is, this is so important, people. This is the gospel. And it's not, and you have to do this, and you have to keep this law, and you have to make sure you do this every Sunday. And you have No, there's nothing out of that stuff in here. It's just believing the gospel. Did God make it too easy? Because so many, everybody wants to add something to it. Well, yeah, but you, yeah, they'll say, yeah, but you have to, no, you don't have to do anything. You have to believe 
the gospel. I believe that Christ died for my sins, was resurrected from the dead. He is the source of life. Him alone. And faith in Him alone. Not anything you can do or try to do. And let me tell you something else that's not part of the gospel that a lot of people want to make part of it today. Eschatology. I'm serious. There's people who are saying, if you're a full preterist, you can't be a Christian. And I'm like, really? Can you show me where that is in the Bible about you know, eschatology being part of the gospel? Believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and you shall be saved. And make sure your eschatology is correct. No. That's not part of the gospel, people. Okay? And we can have different beliefs on a lot of stuff that varies from that. But when you, you better be straight on the gospel, okay? Your foundation better be there. That's super important. All right. Now, I want to pick out a few things here. He said Yeshua died and rose again. It's interesting that Paul uses Yeshua, the human name of our Lord. And the, he only did this one other time in this letter, and that was in 110. And both of them are connected with the resurrection. He said he raised from the dead Yeshua. So only twice Paul used Yeshua's name in this text. Both times he connected it with the resurrection. He says he died and rose again. Both of these are aorist active indicatives which reflect historical facts. The death and resurrection of Christ are among the best facts of history. Don't forget the scriptures predicted these events way, way before they ever occurred. You know that the Bible predicted the exact day Christ would die on the cross? How did he do that? He did it through the feasts of the Lord. The feasts of the Lord. Passover, the 14th of Nisan, the Lamb died. Christ died that very day on the 14th of Nisan, just like God said he would. The gospel truths are the basis for the believer's hope. They sum up the whole atoning work. If we believe, as it were, in the full implications of the death and resurrection of Christ, then we know the judgment for sin has been satisfied. We know we're children of God. We know we're secure, as if we were already in heaven. And then he says, even so, through Yeshua. And you have to look at the different translations here, because this verse gets a little bit difficult. But he's saying that these believers... They died as Christians. They died through Yeshua. They died in union with Him. The resurrection of Yeshua is put forward as a guarantee of the resurrection of believers. Because He re was resurrected, He promised that same thing for us. <clears throat> And then He says this, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does that mean? Who are those who are asleep? Well, it's the Thessalonians that have died. Okay, they died. They're dead called him sleeping. This is talking about the resurrection of the dead. At the coming of Christ, the dead were to be raised. Now, commenting on God will bring with him in an online discussion, former preterist Sam Frost writes this, to bring something or someone means that it or they are with you already so that you can bring it or bring them. I'll bring the dessert with me. Simple. Stop for a second. Is that true? To bring something or someone means that it or they are with you. Is that true? No. I'm coming to church. I say, I'll bring donuts. They're not with me. I don't have donuts. But I'm going to bring them because I'm going to go get them and bring them. So, you know, this is simple. Simple, he says, okay? And with him in heaven, so his argument is these people are with God. Standard answer, been given for thousands of years, even a hyperpret or a caveman can't screw that up. Little slam at the preterist there, okay? Well, here's, let, let me, let me, hey Sam, this is pitiful, because first of all, this phrase is not as simple as you want to make it sound, okay? It's not as simple. The word bring here is very difficult. The verb bring is a go, and it has a wide somatic field. It can mean to bring, it can mean to lead, it can mean to lead away, to lead out, to take, to go. It's used, translated, arrest, to go away. So the question here is, does this imply that the dead are with Yeshua in heaven? 
or that the dead will be raised when Yeshua comes. Now, linguistics say that this verse may mean, on the one hand, that God will bring from heaven with Yeshua the souls of those who have fallen asleep in Him. On the other hand, the verse may mean that God will take with Yeshua the deceased. So it's not so simple as just, let's read the English and let's just take it, you know, I bring with me because I have it. No, that's not that simple. All right? And the second interpretation understands the verb as a reference to the resurrection. The second interpretation is preferable, I think, since the concern of this verse and verse 15 and 16 is to show that the death and resurrection of Christ becomes the paradigm and foundation for the destiny of believers. I think we can rule out the first one here. God will bring from heaven with Yeshua the souls of those who have fallen asleep. Why can we rule that out? <laughs> Thank you, Veronica. I think we can rule it out because of the second coming. The dead Before the second coming, the dead didn't go to heaven. Now, I know that's debatable. There's some people that, oh, yeah, they were there. This is fundamental to understanding this. So let me go over this again briefly here. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. Notice what Yeshua says in Matthew 12. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What age did the New Testament writers live in? This age, right? Because that's what they're writing. Either in this age, in other words, the one we're in. The age to come was future to them. That's why it's to come. Okay, Uh, this is not complicated, okay? I think we could get it. The word come, yeah, (laughs) simple, right. The word come at the end of the verse is the Greek word mellow, the age about to come. About to come for who? Well, for those people in that age, all right? The original audience of the first century. Now, this age of the Bible is the age of the Old Covenant that was to pass away in the first century. It should be clear to you that this age is not the Christian age in which we live. In the first century, the age of the Old Covenant was fading away and would end completely when the temple was destroyed. Listen, as long as that temple stood, they're in this age, they're in the Old Covenant age. The New Covenant had been introduced, but it had not been consummated, will not be consummated until that temple comes down. Okay? Look what Hebrews 8 says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That'd be the old covenant, right? New covenant, old covenant. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Listen, this was written around 65 to 69 A.D., And he says that old covenant, it's becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready. It hasn't vanished, but it's ready to. It passed away. It vanished in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. The this age of the Bible is now ancient history. At At the end of the old covenant, when that temple came down, the old covenant is done. No more sacrifices. No more priesthood. No more any of that. New covenant is consummated. We're in the New Covenant. But at the end of the Old Covenant, several things happened. Okay? One of them was Christ's return. The parousia. All right? We see that. 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, who is here is the Greek word mellow. So it's who is about to judge the living and the dead. Watch. By his appearing. So when he comes, he's going to judge them, okay? Now, Hebrews 10, 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. I don't know what people who are still waiting 2,000 years later, what did he mean by this, okay? Was he really confused? And listen, here's the, the, the Greek is very expressive, very emphatic here. The clause literally reads this way. For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. 
in just 2,000 years. Again, the book of Hebrews is written around 65 to 69, so it's, just, it's really short now. We're coming up to it. So Christ returned. Secondly, what happened? The resurrection occurred. John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The last day of what? The last day of this age. The age to come, listen, the age to come has no last days. Okay, it's an everlasting covenant. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the old covenant age when the Lord returned. And then the third thing that happened was the judgment. These are the big three. This is what happened at E70, the return of Christ, the resurrection, the judgment. Talking about the judgment, Matthew 13, 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Now, since this age of the Bible ended in 870 with the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Lord, we must be in the age to come. And if we're in the age to come, then the second coming, the resurrection, the judgment has already happened. If prior to Yeshua's messianic work, no one went to heaven, where did people go when they died? Well, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they went prior to the resurrection was Sheol. Okay, we've been over that. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. And as we saw in our last study, these terms, I think, mean the grave. Old covenant believers slept in the grave until the resurrection of the dead at the end of the old covenant age. People didn't go to heaven until the second coming. I think that's clear. It seems very clear to me because redemption had not been completed, had not been paid for. Yeshua says very clearly, in the age to come, eternal life, saying eternal life is not a condition of this age. Eternal life comes after the consummation. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I, I'm pressing on. I want to attain this goal. I haven't gotten there yet. What's he talking about? He's talking about justification. And Paul says, I don't have it yet because I'm in this age. And justification was a hope for the future, just like righteousness was a hope for the future. They had it, but they hoped for it because they were in the already but not yet. It was sure to come. But it wasn't consummated yet. Bob Utley writes this. The New Testament is not clear about the state of believers between death and resurrection. I think it is. He says, when, when this passage is compared to 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, postulating a disembodied period becomes a logical necessity. Uh, no, I don't think so. See, the problem, 2 Corinthians there, Paul says, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So they're saying, okay, that means Paul dies. He goes right to be with the Lord. Again, go back to Philippians chapter 3, 13. Paul says, I don't have it yet. I'm, I'm striving for what I don't have. So if he didn't have it yet, if he wasn't justified, he wouldn't be in the presence of God. Utley goes on, believers are with the Lord, but as yet have not their resurrected bodies. Okay, that's a typical futuristic view. You go to heaven, but you don't have your body yet. This is the same view that Sam Frost is pushing in this discussion on the web. Sam goes on to say this, now, the dead in question are with God in heaven. Okay, so you're with God in heaven, but you're dead. What would be life? What would life be? See, God is life. To be in His presence is to be alive. But the dead in question, they're with God, but they're dead. And he's going to clarify this in a minute, so give him a chance. <laughs> and who are to be brought with God when Jesus, son of Mary, born in Bethlehem, descends from heaven? It says that the dead who are in Christ shall rise first. Okay, here we go. The dead, again, that's troubling. But he goes on to say, and then he throws some Greek in there just so you know that he knows what he's talking about. Because, you know, cut and paste in Greek proves that you know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> Now use your brain here, he says. If the dead, in reference to their body, so when, see, he says if the dead. So he said the dead just refers to their body. Okay? So their body's dead, but are they dead? Because they're in heaven with God. So how are you dead if you're with God? And he says, but their spirits, in reference to their spirits, they're alive. They're with God, only the spirits are with God. So their spirit's alive, but their body's dead. So they're dead and they're alive at the same time. Okay? 
And they will be brought with him when Jesus descends from heaven. Why is there a need for them to be raised? He's asking a question. Aren't they already with God in heaven? Yes. Aren't they already alive? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They are. What then that is theirs stands in need of being raised? Well, their bodies, duh. Okay, so they're with God, but they're dead. Because their body's dead, so they can't be alive. Because they need this body to be alive, so they're waiting for their body. They're sitting in heaven and, and waiting. And then, I guess at the end, God's going to take them with Him. To, Let's go get your bodies, folks. And He goes, comes back and brings them back and gets them their bodies. Really, Sam? Come on. Really, Sam? Sam, you say the dead in question are with God in heaven. Let me ask you this, Sam. When did they go to heaven? When did these dead get to heaven? When did this happen? If the Old Covenant believers went to Sheol at death, as the Bible clearly teaches they did, when did they get transferred to heaven? Can you give me a verse on this? I can give you a verse. John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know they will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So they're going to get transferred to heaven to the presence of Yahweh on the last day of the Old Covenant, which was August of AD 70. So Thessalonians was written about 50 AD, and it would be 20 years until the resurrection. At that time, the time of this writing, they were dead in Sheol, not alive in heaven and bodies dead. Not dead and alive. You can't be dead and alive. Okay? They're dead. They're sleeping. They're not with God. It says God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. So this can't imply that the dead are with Yeshua in heaven because nobody's there yet. It's saying that the dead will be raised at Yeshua's coming. Alright, let's move on to the next verse. He says, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul said, this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. What Paul's saying here, I get my eschatology from Yeshua. That's what he's saying. Okay? That's, we just cut it, cut it to the chase. That's what he's saying there. He says, I'm getting this from the Lord. Now, G.K. Beale, who was not a preterist, writes this. Paul is recollecting the words of the earthly Jesus and paraphrasing him. This is apparent from noticing that 4.15-5.7 of 1 Thessalonians has numerous parallels that demonstrate a high probability that Paul is dependent on Jesus' teaching on the last days. He is absolutely right, okay? Absolutely right. Listen, Paul got his eschatology from Yeshua. If you compare Matthew 24 and 25 with 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 5.7, you will see very clearly, and we'll do that next week, you'll see very clearly where Paul got his eschatology. He's getting it from what the Lord talked about. Now Paul says this, We who are alive, who are left until the coming. Alright, who's writing this? It's Paul. When is he writing it? He's writing it in A.D. 50. It sounds like when you read this that he expects to be alive when the Lord comes. Does it not? We who are alive. Now, J. Hampton Keithley, who is, again, not a preterist. He's a futurist. But again, even futurists can understand text and take it apart, okay? They can do exegesis, all right? He says, Paul first addresses the issue of those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. But in doing this, he says, we and not simply those. He didn't say those who are alive. He said we who are alive. In the Greek text, the we is slightly emphatic and seems to be designed to bring out an important point. Clearly, Paul included himself among those who could be alive when the Lord returns. There's a clear implication here. Paul believed the coming of the Lord and the things described here were eminent and could have occurred in his day. Any other viewpoint fails to give the needed recognition to Paul's use of the first person pronoun we instead of the third person those. 
I mean, anyone, listen, anyone who doesn't think that Paul and the New Testament writers expected the Lord's return in their lifetime is confused. I mean, unbelievers see this. Liberals see this. That, they use this to attack Christianity. See, the Lord said clearly he's coming back in that generation, and he didn't do it. And so Christianity's wrong. They see it. Christians can't see it. Any other viewpoint? We who are alive. Paul could have said, those who are alive, whenever this happens, no, he expected it to happen. Now, commentator Bob Utley also sees that Paul expected the Lord's return in his lifetime, but he writes this. This expectation of an any moment return of the Lord is the privilege of every generation of believers. Does that make any sense? Yep, he's coming quickly, but that's okay. All of us can believe that. I had someone tell me once, the Lord wanted every generation to be ready, so that's why he told them he was coming to them. So he lied to them. I'm coming in your generation. Nope, you're, nope, nope, you're, and just keep on going. Keep everybody waiting for a long, long time. So for over 2,000 years, believers have been privileged to expect in any moment return of the Lord. Regarding the fact of eminency here, Thomas in the Expositor's Bible Commentary has this to say. Had this not been the Thessalonians' outlook, he's talking about eminency, all right, coming at any moment, their question regarding the dead in Christ and exclusion from the parousia would have been meaningless. I mean, they were thinking in terms of eminent parousia, expecting to see it before death. He said, this is stupid. Why would they even bother if, unless they expected it in their lifetime? They would have just thought, well, that's no big deal. We're all going to die before this happens. No. They were thinking in terms of an imminent parousia. All right, Paul says, we who are left until the coming of the Lord. Now, the phrase here, we who are left, this appears over and over again in the literature of the air and often refers to people who had survived a tragedy that left others dead. Now, it doesn't have to convey that in every context, but in many contexts it does. And the use of this description of the living believers may imply that some Christians in Thessalonica had died in persecution, forwarded by their unconverted contemporaries. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 2? He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So they're suffering persecution. Just maybe some of them were dying because of this. And then the others are concerned, okay, now what? Now what happens? Coming here is our word parousia. Literally means presence. By metaphorical extension, it means coming. To the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship. His glorious appearing in power as the Lord. Most references to the second coming here, as we've talked over and over, have a time statement with them. The time statement here is Paul says, we. He expected it in his lifetime. That's a clear time statement as to when this is going to happen. He says, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Will not is a very strong double negative. It's never, no, never. And then proceed here is thato, and it means to proceed, to go before. It means by no means will they go before or precede us. So those saints who have died, he's telling them, will fully participate in all the end time events as will the believers who are alive at the second coming. Don't worry, they're not going to miss out on anything. Young's literal translation says this, For this this to you we say in the word of the Lord, We are living who do remain over to the presence, parousia, of the Lord, may not proceed those who are asleep. So Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that Christ is going to return in their lifetime, and those who are alive at that time would not go into God's presence ahead of the dead saints. So he's saying, you people, if you die, you're not going right to heaven. You're going to wait, okay? Because the transition period is still in effect. So don't worry about your deceased loved ones. They're going to be raised. They're going to be ushered into the presence of Yahweh. 
Now, we'll finish this chapter 4 next week as we get into the rapture, but hopefully we'll put it all together next week and see if we can understand what is supposed to happen at that time to the living. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. It's, it's dense. There's a lot here, Father, that needs to be unpacked. I pray you just give us a heart of Bereans that we study these things. We look at it in context. We look at the language that you're using and compare it with that of the Tanakh. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, I thank you that we live in the age to come. We are privileged, Lord, to have eternal life, that death for us is to usher directly into your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the grace you've given us. Amen. All right. Nope. Questions, comments. Gary. Answer my question next week, so I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> you better answer my question. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is Rick. Rick Wells. She says, Is it safe to say, like you said earlier, that those who differ in our eschatological view but believe those they love that believe the gospel die are in heaven. They're correct. They just don't understand the eschatology, yet God's grace is sufficient. Yes, a futurist who believes the second coming is future, they think their loved one dies, they go into the presence of the Lord. They're right, they do, but not according to their eschatology. If they really understood their eschatology, they realize our loved one can't be in the presence of God until the Lord returns. So they're wrong <laughs> on their eschatology, but it all worked out because this, the Lord has returned. And so the, the loved one is there, but only because their eschatology is wrong. Yes, if their eschatology was right, that wouldn't work out. But their eschatology is wrong, and so therefore they're okay. Uh, I don't know who this is from. It says, thank you for your courage to let the Scripture speak and challenge the traditions of men. Steve in Iowa. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, look, people vary on these texts, okay? And that's why you've got to look at the Scriptures. You've got to see, is this, does this add up? What does this word actually mean? You know, I've, I've read some literature lately that people have sent me, and people are defending positions, using the Greek. And they'll say, this Greek word means this, and then go on with their position. Well, you know, when you look up that Greek word, you find out, mm, not really. <laughs> not really. I mean, maybe that is one of the possible meanings, but it's like our words. The Greek has different meanings. But sometimes they pull a meaning in that I can't find anywhere because it proves their point. And they'll just say, well, the Greek says, and therefore you just say, oh, okay, well, then it must be right. Listen, we have, we have access to every tool you can imagine today. Get a lexicon, do some digging, look it up. You can figure it out for yourself. I mean, don't buy into some crazy ideas that people are saying just because they throw some Greek out there at you like, okay, that ends the argument. Not really. <laughs> Come on, I can't read this, April. It says, you're such a blessing. I go weekly to my local church and hear every well, and hear every week, yeah, Every week, how to be saved. Well, good. <laughs> Have you figured that? You know what's funny? Uh, when I was, uh, when I'd go to the Baptist church, they'd preach a different text every time, but the same message. Okay? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school, always a different text, but the message was always the same. Get saved. Okay? It was whatever text they went to. All right? That's the whole of the message. I appreciate your teaching depth so I can grow. I love hearing you when you get home. I love hearing you when I get home. Okay. April in Fredericksburg. Thank you, April. I appreciate that. Appreciate you watching. Okay. I don't think. All right, I don't think I got any. If you've got, you got a question, please get them in a little quicker so I can answer them and not, we're not waiting on st anybody else. Or just call. Yeah, or just go ahead. Uh, no, 
<laughs> Go ahead and call. <laughs> Norm, if you want to call, I'll pick up your, call. I'll pick up your question. <laughs> Someone who doesn't have a, a cell phone. Norm, come on. Five-year-olds have cell phones nowadays. Everybody has a cell phone. I mean, I see kids riding their little big wheels down the street talking on their cell phone to their friends. <laughs> Everybody has a cell phone nowadays, okay? I mean, if you don't have one, how do you expect the FBI to track you? Sheesh, <laughs> you're making it difficult, okay? <laughs> Anybody else? We done? We good? <laughs> Why is God so mysterious when we're so dumb? <laughs> Why are we so dumb? Here's, again, I think, I really think, and I've shared this many times, I really think the problem is we want it to be easy. We really want it to be easy. And it's just, it's not. I mean, the Bible is a vast book. I mean, there's so much there, and it's worth our time and effort to dig into it and to find out, you know, exactly what it has to say. But if we're not going to do it, you know, listen to what God says. Proverbs 2, verse 4. If you seek it like silver, think of the effort that people go through to make money or to get money. If you seek for the silver and search for it like a hidden treasure. If I told you this morning... While you were here in church, I had someone go to your house, and they hit a million dollars in cash in your house. When you got home, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to lunch today. You know, you wouldn't do it. You'd go home, and you'd rip your, no, or you'd rip your house apart. You'd tear it apart board by board until you found it. I mean, seriously, think of, make the comparison. Like hidden treasure. Verse 5 says, then... You will understand the fear of Yahweh and discover the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom from His mouth. Come knowledge and understanding. But it's up to us to apply ourselves to dig it out. And we have no excuses today because, like I said, we have every study aid at hand. We can dig into the Word of God. We can find out. We can look at original language. We can compare Scripture with Scripture. But people are doing too many things instead of spending time in the Word of God. They're on Facebook, Instagram, all this other nonsense. Okay, you're, you're busy with all this. Get in the Word of God. Anthony? Once you thought and find it, you have to receive it. Well, you do have to believe it, but you know, you can't believe what you don't know, and that's the problem. Do you believe we are still in a new covenant, even though that was made to Israel? Absolutely, I believe we are in the new covenant. Okay, we are the new covenant. We are Israel. We are the Israel of God. Okay, Yeshua was Israel. Yeshua was the true Israel. We in Him, we are children of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. Check it out. We're a, we're, how do you explain when Ephesians 3 says we are the dispensation of grace? We're in that. This is grace. I mean, the new covenant is all about grace. Okay, he's writing the law of God on our hearts. Yes, we are the fulfillment, the completion of Israel. And if you read through the New Testament, God uses all these designations of the church that were used of Israel because demonstrating we are the Israel of God. How about those who were resurrected when Christ was resurrected? Did they die again or go to heaven when Christ ascended? Good question. I don't have a clue. Ask Bob. He preached on that, okay? <laughs> yes, Bob preached that message. and That was my question when Bob was done preaching. I'm like, then what happened to him? Did they die again? Did, what ha I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. Let me tell you this. I don't think anybody knows what happened to him because I don't think there's anything that tells us what happened to him, okay? Now, so I don't know. That's a good question. I wish I could answer it, but I can't. All right, I think I think I got them all. <laughs> I missed two calls from Norm. How did I miss those calls? Oh, my phone's on silent. Norm, what do you do know if you would explain the word meat and the word perusia? 
Okay, no, we're going to get into that next week, okay? So hang on. Don't, don't rush ahead. We're going to meet the Lord there, and I'm going to talk about that next week. Uh, we talked about parousia today, parousia today. Parousia is His presence, all right? The manifestation of God, all right? It doesn't, the disciples didn't expect to come in because they didn't know He was going. They expected a manifestation of His form.